Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Glad that you're here. Hope you're having a good weekend. Um, Hopefully you, you had some time uh, with the holiday to spend with family, friends. Uh, hopefully you didn't have to work the entire week, weekend, so hope you're able to enjoy some of that. We're glad that you're here with us. Uh, Memorial Day has passed. July 4th is now passed, so we are dead on in summer, right? There's no denying it. We're here, and in this summer here at Calvary, we are going to be in a series that we're calling Vitals. Vitals is going to be a kind of a topical-based series throughout the summer where we're going to take a look at four different topics and spend a couple of weeks on each topic. And so we're going to be looking at things like marriage and family relationships. We're going to be looking at things like generosity. How about authenticity? How do I live uh, beyond the facade that we oftentimes put up in front of each other because we really are afraid of somebody maybe getting to know the real us, right? Because that might mean they don't like me or once they know me, they'll reject me or hold me at a distance or it'll be embarrassing. And today we're going to start a topic uh, that may be familiar to some of you. It's something called spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is... Not often, that that phrase is not often uh, used sometimes in in churches like ours, but it is definitely something that is worthy of our attention. Uh, Christian Christian spiritual formation is really understood as the long-term process uh, in which a believer desires to become a disciple of Jesus and also become more and more like him. This process requires an engagement by us as well as the power of God. One author said this, spiritual formation for the believer basically refers to the Holy Spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of the human self in such a way that it becomes like the inner being of Jesus himself. That's the idea here is that the idea of being of, of the process by which we, and we're going to look at that today, we are being shaped by God to become more like his son. We know that that's what we're all about, right? We just spent a month talking about that we are all about helping, each, helping uh, people follow Christ together and, follow, and, and following Jesus together. It's a, it's a communal effort. Yes, do I have an individual walk with him and you do too? Absolutely. But it's something we do in community as we center around the, the truth of his word and as we look to Jesus because we understand that that's his call. And so this idea of the spirit-driven process of forming the inner world of, our, of us into more and more like the inner self of Jesus is what this idea of spiritual formation is all about. And to get us started, we're going to be taking a look at, at a passage of Scripture in Galatians chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 12. Now, up until this point in the letter of Galatians, or letter to the, to the Galatians, I'm sorry, Paul's approach has been, you might call it confrontational, maybe even impersonal. He has been writing more like a scholar or a debater. He has been marshalling every possible argument and illustration to get his message across. He has kind of taken the stance in the first four and a half chapters of Galatians of somewhat of a determined attorney in a court, giving an irrefutable presentation. But his approach now, as we begin to look at our text in verse 12, his approach in verse 12 of chapter 4 is is something much different. It changes dramatically. It moves from anger at a group of people that were known as Judaizers, who were people who were who were Christians, but they were Jewish, and they were, they were trying to somehow enforce all sorts of 
Jewish rules and regulations on believers there in, in Galatia. And so the, the term that has been used to refer to them is Judaizers. And, and so Paul saw them as an incredibly destructive uh, personage and group of people to the church in Galatians. So he has been really adamant about that. But then in, in, in verses 12 through 20, he moves from that purely doctrinal uh, discussion of that aspect of that issue to the more personal. In fact, some have suggested that these are Paul's strongest words of personal affection that he uses in any of his letters that he writes to any of his churches or the churches that he founded or individuals to whom he wrote. Strongest words of personal affection. He doesn't so much preach or teach as he does simply pour out his heart in personal exhortation to them. He says, in effect, this, I care about you more than I can say. I love you dearly just as you have loved me dearly. Please listen to what I'm saying because it is so vitally essential to your life. So with that level of passion and that level of personal connection that he has to these believers, he writes the following, wor following words. And he was, of course, inspired by God to do this. If you would, you can follow along with me on the back of your notes or bring it up on your phone or whatever. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, and uh, I'll read that if you follow along with me. I beg you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I also became like you. You have not wronged me. You know that I previously preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. You did not despise or reject me through my physical condition, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So then have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? They, he's referring to the Judaizers here, the people who wanted to impose those extra regulations on them. They court you eagerly, but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would, not, so that you would pursue them. But it is always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I am with you. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Hopefully just in the reading, you can, of course, we have no nonverbals, right, from Paul, but hopefully you can at least hear his level of passion and emotion as he shares with these believers these, this important truth about them being formed in Christ Jesus. Let's pray for a minute and ask God to shine his, the light of his Holy Spirit on our time today. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift that Paul is to the church and has been to the church since you changed his life. And we pray, God, that you might take these verses and illuminate them with the power of your Holy Spirit 
so that we can understand them not just with our minds, but that we can understand them with our hearts, with our spirits, and that they would not just some, uh, make today uh, about something that we know a little bit more about the Bible or a little bit more about you or a little bit more about Jesus or Paul or the believers in Galatia, but instead, Lord, that it would, tra- it would change us. It would transform us. So we trust you to do that because we know only you can. And we pray that in, jo- in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you could see from the very outset in these verses, right, that this is a, a very deeply personal word that Paul is sharing now with these believers. He begins with a plea, right? He says to them, I, I'm begging you. Now, I, I don't recall too many times in my life, maybe on one hand, that I've said to someone, I beg you. I've never been in a situation where I had to beg for my life. Thankfully, I've never been, I've been in trouble and I felt like I had to beg from my parents uh, for mercy and even maybe some law enforcement officials. I, I, but I don't remember ever using those particular terms. But Paul literally is saying here, I am begging you. I'm, I, I'm, I'm pleading with you. The word is, is deomai. It means to plead, to ask, to beg. It can also mean to pray, interestingly enough. Sometimes it's used in scripture that way. In multiple times, in the book of Luke, it's used oftentimes. And, and one of the times it's used is in, in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. It says, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was, who, who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and, same word, begged him. Well, you can imagine, right? If you're covered with leprosy, and you, you, some of you know in the ancient world, the, the reality of being a, a leper in the ancient world meant isolation, complete isolation from the rest of the world other than people who were just like you who had leprosy. That wouldn't have been a great place to live, right? You're miserable, they're miserable, we're all miserable, and in fact, we're required to like, as we walk down the street, to announce the fact that we have leprosy so that nobody comes with even, even in, you know, remotely close distance to us. So you can imagine when this guy comes up to Jesus and he falls on the ground and he's begging Jesus, it's not just like, hey, Jesus, you know, if you would happen to have the time, I know you're a busy guy, I heard about all the stuff you're doing, but would you happen to be able to consider me just maybe doing something for me? No, he is passionately begging Jesus. You go to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 28. uh, I'll pick it up in verse 26. They, that is Jesus and his followers, in Luke 8, 26, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, same word, don't torture me. The demons are begging Jesus not to do something to them. The man who was covered with leprosy is praying begging Jesus to do something for him. And you, some of you remember the verse that we uh, shared last week where Jesus said uh, that the harvest was plentiful, but the workers were few. And, and so we, he, he encouraged his followers to pray and ask the Lord of the harvest. You know what that word is? Same word, deomai. Begging you, I'm begging you. Now, how important is the harvest, is, how important is the harvest to Jesus? So when he's asking us 
to pray, to beg, to plead with God that there would be more workers in the harvest field knowing that the very reason Jesus existed was to reconcile humanity back to himself, then that's a pretty serious thing to ask for, right? Pray for this thing. Those demons understood who Jesus was and they're begging that they wouldn't be tortured by him. This man who was covered in leprosy is miserable and he's begging and Paul's saying, I'm begging you guys. He, he's willing to step out of the, again, of the, 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 the kind of the mode that he was in in the first part of this book, well, the predominant part of this book, the majority of this book. He's willing to step out of that argumentative, kind of, again, you know, rhetorical, debater, attorney-style stuff. And now he's just like saying, listen, just person to person, brothers, sisters, I'm begging you. And he's begging them while he's remembering them. <laughs> And I, and I think when you think about the things that, you know, cause us to be moved to beg, it's this idea of fond memories that he has of them. Paul, and we, we don't really have the time to go into all of it. We're not, we're not sure exactly what, uh, what, he, what, he, what he's referring to. But we know that, that, that Paul... Is, is making it in this abrupt change of emphasis. He's, he's reminding the Galatians of, of how rich and deep their personal relationship had once been with them. They had not only done him no wrong, but they had, they had openly and they had lovingly received him and, and, and just cared for him and engaged with him while he was in extremely, for, in something that was going on again, we're not sure. We're not sure if, he, if this illness that he refers to, he, that it took him to Galatia, and so that was there, he went there to, and he was like recuperating or he got this, some, this illness while he was there. But he, he, he's, he's talking about how it wasn't a trial for them and it wasn't a problem for them, but now it has become a problem for them. And, and in the ancient world, it, it's interesting, the way that illness and sickness was viewed was oftentimes seen as a judgment of God. And so it was kind of like the friends of Job, you know, you would, if, you, if, you were, if you had adversity, if you had sickness, if you had trial, it was like, well, the judgment of God must be on you. But Paul's saying, that wasn't what it was with you guys. It wasn't like that with you. We were, we were together. We were brothers. We were sisters. I remember who we were. I remember how we were. And when I think about how we were, it just, it makes me smile. I was so, con- we were so connected with one another. And so as he, as he recalls all of these fond memories that he has for them, and he's in his mind, he's like, where has this gone? Sometimes in, in marriage relationships, this happens. The course of my ministry, uh, I've been involved in, in, in counseling marital couples. And, and even in my own marriage, there are times when, of course, Amy and I, just like every married couple, have struggles. We have issues. We have times where we aren't maybe necessarily clicking the best, right? That happens for us, just like it does probably for every married couple sitting here. And sometimes you think, man, how did we get here, right? We, the, it used to be like this. How did we get to this place? And Paul's kind of, he's kind of reminiscing in that same way. We used to be here. How do do we get over here? How am I now here with you guys? Like excluded and held at a distance as if I'm an enemy of yours. What have these people done to you that have caused you to be in this way? I'm I'm begging you, right? And and what he's begging them to to do is, is to become like him, ironically. 
And he says, in remembering, again, part of this whole remembrance thing, become like me because I became like you. He's talking about how his, that's a, a kind of a, a reference to the fact that he's been where they're at. He's been under the influence of Judaizers, so to speak, although you wouldn't have called them Judaizers because Paul was a full-blown, full you know, uh, card-carrying, rule-following, right, well-educated, aristocratic Jew. And so he understood that. He understood where they had been. And so he's begging them to instead of reject him, to become like him because they know that he has been where they are. After he, after he in, encourages them with this passion, begging them to become like him, he offers them a warning. This warning is, again, about the Judaizers. And very simply, he says, they court you eagerly, they want you, but it is not for your good. It's a very, really important principle here that there is always something out there in the world that wants us, Right? There's always some sort of invitation. Give this your attention. Give this your time. Give this your affection. Give your life to this. Give it to this cause. Give it to that cause. Give it to the other cause. I mean, you could spend probably doing a Google search. You could probably every day of your life from now until the day you died, I'm just hazarding a guess here, you could probably become a champion of a different cause every day for the rest of your life, right? Right? You could become absolutely, completely, totally super distracted. Some of them wouldn't be so destructive as what the Judaizers are trying to do to, to Paul's disciples, to the followers of Jesus, because they're trying to change the very reality of what it means to be saved by grace, to be a, a gospel-driven Jesus follower, and they're trying to turn it into something else, which is about rules and regulations and adding to what Paul taught them in the truth of the gospel. And some things can be incredibly destructive like that, but other things in our life can just be distractions. They court you eagerly. They want you. They talk about how much good you could do. They talk, uh, talk with you about, about how this is beneficial for you, how it's beneficial for others. And Paul, in, 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 the, in these little words, reminds us that there is one thing, though, though there are lots of things that do court us, there's one that is worth us investing our life in. And so he's warning them what they're doing. It's not for your good. All of these things are very personal. I'm begging you. I remember us. I remember who we were and how you were. And I remember what, what, what happened with all of that. I'm warning you I, because I care about you. Don't follow them. Don't give your life to that. It's not in your best interest. Please don't. I'm begging you. In fact, so much so, and you might say, this is probably the part of the talk that I wanted to kind of skip over because I can't even talk uh, accurately or with any sort of ex expertise about it. But Paul says he is in agony. He says, I'm suffering labor pains. Now, I have, to got, I have to say to you, that's a pretty bold thing for a dude to say, right? As the women in Galatia roll their eyes at Paul, right? Like, you know what labor pains are, Right? And I in no way am going to try to somehow connect with those of you who are mothers 
and somehow understand. I, I, I probably should have brought Amy or someone else up on stage who's the mother that, that could talk about this and more. But I think we all understand that when he says he's suffering labor pains, that he is talking about something that is agonizing, right? This isn't just like a little paper cut. This is something that is deeply affecting him. And notice, I, I love how he does this. He calls them his children. He's already, in a sense, given birth to them. He didn't really, right? God gives the new birth. But they're children of his because he brought the gospel to them. They are now his children in Christ. And now he's saying, I'm going through all this over again. Now, ladies, I would guess that it's when you have that second child, it's not like you were expecting to be an exact replication of the first one. You're like, no, I already did that. I already had her. I already had him. I'm not going to go back and have that, all of that again to have that same, same child. Paul's saying, I'm, a, I'm suffering for a second time the pains of childbirth for you, my children. He's in agony over this. You see how he, again, it's kind of like Paul has let his, all his intellectual stuff just go out the window for a few seconds. I love this window into his life. Sometimes I, we, get, we get this message in the church that we, and I, and I understand there is some truth to it, you know, that don't trust emotions and, and, and be very wary of your emotions. And, and, uh, but I, may I just suggest that God designed us as emotional beings, and God inspired one of the greatest writers of Scripture and history to be very emotional right now with, his, with these people that he loves. And that's okay. Evidently, it was okay with God because he inspired him to say these things, right, if we believe in the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. And so Paul is in agony, and he, and he says, I have a longing for you. Well, why is he in agony? He says, I, I'm again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. That's what his longing for them is. His longing for them is one thing. Christ is formed in you. Spiritual formation. The Greek word is morpho. It was originally in ancient Greek used of artists who shaped their material into an image. And that's where we go back to that definition of spiritual formation. It is the spirit-driven process that we participate in by which then our inner self is transformed more and more into the inner being of Jesus himself. So morpho, if, if it, didn't, it wouldn't matter what we would do if the Spirit didn't drive it, if the Spirit didn't superintend it, if God wasn't involved in it, we could not become more like Jesus. But God, Paul's desire for them, his longing for them, is that Christ would be formed in, in them. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. As he's making this passionate, personal, emotional plea with them to stop with the Judaizers and get back to the simplicity of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Richard Foster, some of you might have heard of him. Hard to believe 
that this uh, that Foster just kind of completed his ministry career. Some of you may know that. He's in his upper 70s now. He wrote a book many years ago called Celebration of Discipline. And uh, it's basically uh, actually kind of a, uh, much of the basis of the, uh, of the Disciple You elective that Paul Prong is leading at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. And by the way, if you missed this week, uh, it doesn't meet next week because of the family breakfast, but you can pick it up again on, on July 21st. But in, the, in his book, Richard Foster writes about the spiritual disciplines. And spiritual disciplines are things like prayer and fasting and study and meditation and worship and things like that. And he says about those things that God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving his grace. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. That word transform the ancient Greek word for that was metamorpho, which is, the root word of it is morpho, which is Christ formed in you. This is what Foster says about the disciplines. By themselves, things like prayer, fasting, worship, study, all those things. By themselves, the spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done by God. They put us in that place where God changes us. He's the author and finisher of our our faith. He's going to form us. He's going to make us more like Jesus. But the time is now for us to embrace those spiritual disciplines, not for the purpose of saying, oh, I have my devotion today. Oh, I watched a Christian TV show today. Oh, I listened to some Christian music today. It's not that those things are wrong, those things are good, but oftentimes they're the end for us rather than the means by which we are changed more and more into the image of Christ. We need to see those things as tools that change us because that help us to put us in the place where God can change us. That's what spiritual formation is all about. Paul finishes this little passionate blurb here in verse 20 by saying this, I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice. I'm not sure exactly what he means by that. I don't know if he means it'd be worse for you if I was in face-to-face <laughs> or if he'd be a little more gentle. I'm really not sure. You could take it however you, you think. I'm not, I'm, I, I've thought about this a lot and, and studied. I'm not sure what he means exactly, but I do see this. He says, I don't know what to do about you. That English phrase, I don't know what to do about you, is actually only one word in the Greek. It's aporeo. It means to have no way out. To be at a loss mentally, to stand in doubt, to be perplexed, to not know how to decide or what to do, to be without resources. There have been times in my life as a father where I've considered some of the things that some of my children have done and I've said to them in the same way that my father and mother probably thought often about me, I do not know what to do about you. And spiritually, that's what Paul's saying to these followers. He's just like at wit's end. He's perplexed. He's frustrated. Why? Because he only wants one thing for them. My longing for you is that Christ would be formed in you. Spiritual formation. That you, your life, will be consumed by the person of Jesus. And so I I don't know what to do. I'm perplexed, I'm frustrated, I'm at my wit's end. 
I've tried everything, so to speak. I, and now I, I don't know what to do, how to decide. I, I don't feel like I have the adequate resources to just help you to have Jesus be formed in you. I, I couldn't say it nearly as wonderfully as Paul did a couple thousand years ago. But I would say that myself, Paul, any leader of, in any Christian body should want that one thing for those people that have been entrusted to him or her to be a shepherd. And that one thing is that they would have Christ be formed in them. That's my longing for you. And I pray that as we consider over, the next, over this week and next week, this idea of spiritual formation, that it would grow in your, that there would in your heart grow a, a desire for more and more of Christ being formed in you. Because I think that that's not only Paul's desire for the Galatians or my desire for you, but it's God's desire for every one of his children that Christ would be formed in us. Heavenly Father, again, I, th I thank you for Paul. I thank you for the way in which you inspired him to write that those, to those followers many, many years ago whom he loved so dearly. I thank you that he opened his heart And in the same way, God, I just pray that you would reach into our lives and our hearts. That we would hear the call of your Holy Spirit begging us to become like Jesus. Reminding us of this longing that you have to have Christ be formed in us. In the same way, Lord, that ancient artist would shape that raw material into something beautiful. So we now submit ourselves to you in this process of spiritual formation that you might shape us into something beautiful for your use. We recognize, Lord, that there are times when we resist, when we rebel, and so gently correct us, realign us, recalibrate us, and help us to live in submission to this one thing of, being, of Christ being formed in us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.